So I'm Sherry Oxendale, and I am the pastor of discipleship and care ministry here at First United Methodist Church, and I'd like to also welcome you to worship, whether you're here or online. And so last week, I was talking to a congregation member, and, and really a friend too, and she told me that she was ta- thinking about how blessed she was to be raised in a supportive family and people that, around people that cared about her. She has a nice home. She has good friends. She has a great job. And she said sometimes it's just a little difficult for her to fathom what, how people get themselves in some of the situations they get into and then how they endure those situations. I had to agree with her. There's no question about it. Sometimes we live in a bubble, and it's hard to think about how other people's live. We may hear stories on the news, or maybe we have friends, or we ourselves have gone on mission trips. We see pictures like this one. This was taken um, after the assassination of the president in Haiti, President Moise, and this is how the crowd was reacting. Or we see pictures like this. This was taken at our own border. Who do you know? Who do you know personally that's willing to risk everything and travel on foot with their small children because life at home is so bad they're trying to escape? Another way to look at that is, excuse me, who do you know that has the faith and the hope to set out on that type of journey, to look for that type of opportunity? We know life on earth here can be hard. And when we see pictures like this, we may even feel, we feel bad for those people. We, do th- we try to do things for them. We may even feel a little guilty about all the privileges that we have here in the United States. Let's face it, we are blessed to live here. We have clean water, roads, the right to vote, public education, democracy, Amazon, next day delivery, one of my favorites. And I'll be the first to admit that it's pretty easy for me to put a little distance between myself and those people. I mean, after all, they don't look like me. They don't live like I do. Their lifestyle is entirely different. They don't even speak the same language. I would be hard-pressed to really even imagine myself being in that situation and enduring what those people endure. But you know, then life hits a little closer and we see a temporarily displaced person in a Kearney parking lot. She's covered with a tattered tarp and it covers not only her, but also her possessions and her pets. Her possession consists of soggy cardboard boxes that have some household items, flimsy plastic sacks, and a plastic container of dog food. And then maybe it hits a little closer, the hardness of life. And we're aware of acquaintances or friends that are struggling with their health, maybe unemployment or family relationships. We notice someone at work or maybe even a family member that seems sad and withdrawn. And then closest of all, we find ourselves in a situation that we never imagined we'd be in. We lose our job. A spouse announces that he or she wants a divorce. The doctor gives us a life-threatening diagnosis. We become a victim of a crime. 
The neighbor's dog stills the next day delivery of Amazon off the front porch. <laughs> My daughter would tell me, Mom, that is such a first world problem. <laughs> she gets annoyed with us sometimes when we complain about things here. We know our faith tells us to serve those in need. It also tells us to reach out into our community when we ourselves are in need. Unfortunately, instead of taking the opportunity to help someone or ask for help or even have a civil conversation with our neighbor about their dog, we choose the path of least resistance. We choose to avoid opposition. It seems easier to deny something is happening, ignore it, and maybe it'll go away. But this is a mistake. Our lives are full of opportunities. And with those opportunities come opposition. So how are we as Christians supposed to respond to this opposition? Last week, we started a four-week series with the sermon titled, O is for Leadership, with the four O's being Opportunity, Obstacles, obedience, and outcomes. You may not see yourself as a leader who leads, you know, someone who leads a group or an organization, but we all lead at least one person, ourselves. Every week, every day, every time we make a decision, we experience the four O's. So to answer how we as Christians respond to these four O's, we went to the Bible and we started tracing the life of the Apostle Paul and his ministries. So you can go to Google and you can find all kinds of graphics. I Googled, and this is one of the graphics I, I pulled up. On the left, you can see that Jesus is crucified. Then on the right, the third box down, we see that Saul travels to Damascus. That's the point where Saul's conversion took place. On the road to Damascus, a light flashed from heaven all around him. Jesus speaks to him and he is blinded. You may also notice following his experience, Saul begins to use his Latin or Roman name, Paul, instead of his Greek name, Saul. So Adam talked all about this last week. He also talked about Paul's opportunity, the first O. He provided the setting, the political atmosphere, some of Paul's background, and Paul's opportunity after his conversion. An opportunity to convert from a murderous man who was hunting Christians to a man that was inspired by God to write numerous books of the New Testament. If you missed last week's sermon, I'd just encourage you to either go on our Facebook page or you can go on our website and you can watch that. So today, we're going to continue with the second O, opposition or obstacles. Sometimes people are lured into believing that once I become a Christian, my life is gonna be smooth selling. It'll be great. At least we think it should be. Am I right? The truth is, here on earth, life isn't easy for anyone. Not for the person sitting next to you, not for the person you see in the store. Hopefully we all have times in our lives and seasons in our life where life is fantastic and it's joyful. And those seasons give us strength because each and every one of us also have times in our lives or seasons in our lives that are hard. And there's many obstacles. Last week, the story of Paul ended with God instructing a disciple named Ananias to go and find Saul and restore his sight. And it's funny because Ananias actually questioned God and said, wait a minute, 
This is the guy, I've heard stories, this is the guy that's been persecuting Christians. He's been persecuting your people, God. Why do you want me to go and heal him? God responded with, go. And in the Bible, it even has an exclamation mark. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Wow. So Paul has been chosen specifically by God to proclaim God's name to the Gentiles. Anyone who's a non-Jew, that's us. Paul was chosen to proclaim the good news to us. Paul's going to get his, his eyes healed, his sight's going to return, and then God's going to make it so easy for him to go out and spread the good news of Jesus. Nope. The very next thing God says to Ananias is this. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Doesn't make you feel real good, does it? Opposition. And Paul does suffer. He suffers greatly. The Bible describes three missionary journeys and also a journey to Rome that Paul took to spread the good news. And during his first missionary um, journey, Paul heals a cripple. And you know what? The town is excited. They want to praise him. In fact, they're almost worshiping him. And it's like, yeah, this is all right. But then the Jews came into town and all of a sudden the mood of the crowd changed. They became angry. They stoned him and left him for dead. That's his first experience on his first journey. Then he goes on another, a second missionary journey and he heals, well, he actually, he casts out a, a spirit from someone and he gets put in jail. The next time, his third missionary journey, Paul receives, um, he even receives a prophecy that says, hey, if you go back to Jerusalem, you're going to get put in jail again. But Paul obeyed. He went and he was put in jail again. (laughs) So the first graph on the screen included Paul's first and second missionary journeys. This graph includes his third missionary journey, fourth brown box down on the right, and his journey to Rome. Notice the cities. There's Corinth and Ephesus. I've already mentioned Philippi. Maybe I didn't. That was the place that he he cast out the spirit. So think about this. Um, Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Ephesus, Ephesians. And Philippi, Philippians. Just remember that. Notice Paul's in prison when he's in Caesarea. And then under house arrest and lastly imprisoned in Rome before he was executed. Talk about opposition. And these dates don't even include the four shipwrecks that he survived and went through. There isn't enough time to go through all the opposition opposition that Paul faced and how he handled every trial. But we're going to go through Paul's epic sea voyage to Rome and talk about how he handled the opposition. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, I'll be reading out of Acts 27. That's in the New Testament after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then it's Acts, and then you go to chapter 27. So a little background. Paul was in prison. I mean, he was a prisoner, and he had been loaded on a smaller ship along with the other prisoners, and the person that was put in charge of him to guard him was a centurion named Julius. So there's a map that we have. Um, The ship left Caesarea, and then from Sidian, they sailed north around the eastern side of Cyprus and then turned west. 
They put in at Myra where there were larger cargo ships that were suitable for handling the open water of the Mediterranean. At that point, the prisoners, including Paul, were transferred from the smaller boat onto the cargo ship. So we're going to pick up at Acts 27, verse 9. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. So because the Bible verse says that it's after the Day of Atonement, and we know that when he was on the smaller ship, we know that he zigzagged and it took some time. Um, we, we can estimate, well, theologians have estimated that it's probably mid-October and maybe even into November. So at that time, sailors sailed using the stars. If it's during the winter months, November through January, it would be cloudy and they couldn't use the stars. So they didn't usually sail during that time. There were no compasses. So it was really dangerous. We read on. Acts 27:11, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. So they set sail. And first comes this gentle breeze, and they think that they're doing okay, and so they go ahead, and it must be a sailing technique. They throw out the anchor, and then they're skirting along the a coast. But the gentle breeze picks up and becomes a wind. And then it becomes hurricane force and the ship is being tossed about the sea. On the third, um, the crew is frantic, and what they do is they pass ropes underneath the ship, and I saw a picture of this, I'm still trying to figure out how they do it, but they passed ropes under the ship and then all the way down the length of the ship and then tied them together to reinforce the ship. I'm gonna find a video somewhere of that. (laughs) Um, On the third day of the storm, they even threw the ship's tackle overboard. And then the storm continued for days and days. Can you imagine being out on a ship during a hurricane force wind in a vessel that has ropes holding it together? So I'm going to skip to verse 21. After they'd gone a long time without food, because they were seasick, they knew not to eat, because then they'd be dehydrated, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. Okay, so since we're using Paul as our example of of how we're supposed to react to opposition, this is not an excuse for you to say, see, I told you so. (laughs) He says that because his next, he wants them to remember that because he, Paul listened to God and tried to tell them what God wanted to do, that's what happened. His next sentence, Paul's next sentence is in verse 22, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So he's giving encouragement, he's giving hope, and he's giving them God's word. 
So two full weeks have passed and the storm is still raging. The ship is being driven about with the mercy of the wind. The sailors, what they do is they, they drop these anchors that are marked with markings so they can tell the depth of the sea. And they discover that they're moving to closer and closer to shallow water. Now, my initial reaction is that that's great, we're getting closer to land, but if you're in a big ship, not so great if your ship hits a wreath or rocks, and that's what the sailors were afraid of. And so, unbeknownst to the soldiers and the prisoners, the sailors act like they're still dropping the ropes that are measuring the depths of the sea, but actually they're lowering the lifeboat thinking they can hop in it and get, a, get away. But Paul sees them and goes to the soldiers and rats them out. So we read um, verse 31. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers, went, so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. At that point, it seems like all hope is gone. The opposition seems too powerful, but Paul knew better. Paul had faith. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. Verse 33. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Paul gives encouragement. He gives hope. He shows his faith. He thanks God in front of them all. And all together in community, the food is shared. There is a sense of unity, of hope, and faith begins to grow. Down to verse 42. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first to get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached the land safely. So you may be wondering... Why? They just shared a meal with the prisoners. Why are they now going to kill them? Well, back in those times, if you were put in charge of guarding the prisoner and you lost your prisoner, Caesar took your life in exchange. So it was instinct for these soldiers to to kill a prisoner if they thought they were going to escape. Because if that prisoner shows up somewhere else, the guard or the guard doesn't show up with his prisoner, it's the guard's life is substituted. And Julius was the centurion who was guarding Paul it's obvious he had created a relationship with them. I think about that, and I think about the relationship we have built with our friends in Haiti. When you know people, or even the pictures of the kids, and when you pray over them, it doesn't seem so distant. So Paul had built a relationship with the centurion. And for that reason, not only Paul was saved, but all the prisoners that were with them. So you may be wondering why I'm standing up here preaching or the series we're talking about this Apostle Paul instead of talking about Jesus. So why do we want to learn about him? Well, I have another chart for you. So look over to the right side of this chart under the New Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. And in the center column, it shows nine of the books are letters Paul wrote to four churches. 
or wrote to churches, and four are letters he wrote to his acquaintances. That's 13 out of the 27 books in the New Testament. We learn about Paul because he was specifically chosen by God and inspired by God to physically write almost half of our New Testament. Through Paul, we learn so much about Jesus and the establishment of the, of the church. The church, that's us, the people. The church isn't this building, it's the people. And in this particular story of Paul's journey to Rome, it reveals some of the opposition that, and obstacles that Paul endured and gives us examples of how we as Christians can react when we face opposition. Number one, Paul trusted God's word on the ship but that everyone was going to be saved. And they were. So we trust in God. God will deliver us safely from the storms in our lives. Number two, Paul was commanded to take the gospel, the good news, to the Gentiles, and he obeyed. We are to obey God. We are to obey God, love him with our heart, mind, and soul, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Paul served God by serving those on the ship. So we serve God. Wherever we are, we find wherever we find ourselves in every place and at every time, we can serve God by serving others. Trust God, obey God, serve God. When you know what you are doing is right, what, it, what, you, what you're doing is God's will, and you face opposition, you can face it with confidence and grace, knowing that God is there for you. God loves you completely and will be there for you. Paul's words to the Romans, Jeremy read it earlier. We're just going to read it again and think about it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please pray with me. Our holy God, who gives us amazing grace. As we sung, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Lord, we come to you. We come to you during times of trouble when the storms sail around us, knowing that your strong hand lifts us up. Your loving arms wrap around us and comfort us. Lord, you are our God. Though we face opposition in this life, we know that you have conquered the world. By giving your son, Jesus Christ, we are washed clean. You have promised us life eternal with you, a life of peace, a life of joy, a life without pain and suffering. 
Lord, we look toward that day. While we're still here on earth, remind us that we are your, your servants. We are called to help each other, to be in community, to obey, to serve, and to love each other. Lord, be with us now. Let us hear your word. Let us do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.